Just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and in no way represent the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Historical Society, or the Oklahoma State Historic Preservation Office. Hey, listening friends, Jack here. And I would like to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode. And that sponsor is Atlas. Atlas is a branding, web development, and content marketing agency. As a business owner, your day-to-day is uncharted enough. From branding and web design to content marketing, Atlas will help you navigate this digital terrain with ease. In today's world, social media is a great tool. However, you need to have a concrete, focused plan on how to use it. And that's where Atlas comes in. Atlas can help you navigate this modern digital world. And on top of that, Atlas can also help you with traditional means of marketing. So if you would like to book your free consultation, please visit atlasokc.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-O-K-C.com for your free consultation. Welcome to the Musings of an ADD Mind podcast. This is your host, Jack, and I have the ADD Mind. Once again, we're recording our super duper extra special Science with Lars episode. Yay! Woo! Yes, Lars, how's it been since we last spoke? Oh, not too bad. Uh, a bit busy around the house. We've been doing a bunch of home improvement work and uh, some unexpected home improvement work because my garage door decided to fall apart, largely due to mistakes that I made when trying to replace the opener. So. <laughs> That's going to be fixed this week. <laughs> I, I I understand that's the curse of home improvement. You do one thing and then you generally create two more problems. <laughs> so, well, I hope, hope it gets fixed correctly so yep, your house yeah. isn't open to the world. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. Uh, we've had the garage door stuck open for a week now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's never, never, ever fun. The joys of homeownership, first world problems, folks. Yep, yep. <laughs> so, anyway, let's just dive right into this thing. What are we going to learn about today? Well, uh, I'd like to give a bit of a talk about Big Bang cosmology. Um, just uh, as a refresher, in case you didn't hear the previous science episode, the, the topic of science itself is a surprisingly complicated one or perhaps not that surprising, depending on how much you've studied it, uh, there is, in fact, a considerable, uh, at least, disagreement and discussion among scientists and philosophers about just what does and does not count as science. Uh, so just like last time, the broad definition we're going to be using is that science is not just trivia, but it's a method of gaining knowledge of the physical universe by the systematic testing of hypotheses against observation. Um, and we can you can listen to the last science episode for a little more detail on that. And uh, probably in the future, I'll do an episode just on the philosophy of science and what makes it special. Uh, but that's the definition we're going to be going with for today. So, alrighty, alrighty. Yeah. Uh, so, the topic I want to discuss today, as I mentioned, is Big Bang cosmology. So, I guess the first thing we need to find out is what is cosmology. Uh, well, cosmology is the study of the scope and history of the observable universe and how it has gone from a past state to its current state and what it'll be like in the future. It is not about the origin of existence itself. It may not be that the origin of existence is even a meaningful term. All we can say is that we do have existence as it is. Uh, we don't really know why it is as opposed to some sort of absolute nothing. We don't even know if absolute nothing even makes sense. So sometimes people might talk about Big Bang cosmology colloquially as the emergence of the universe from nothing. It's understandable, but uh, philosophically or strictly scientifically, that may not be the best way to put it. It is really about the expansion of the universe as we know it, the space and time and energy that compose the universe from an incalculably hot, dense state starting about 13.8 billion years ago 
and continuing and accelerating today. Uh, in fact, this acceleration will likely spell the end of existence as we know it many, many, many trillions of years from now. Uh, if it, indeed it continues to accelerate, it may eventually tear apart protons and the other subatomic particles, uh, meaning that nothing can meaningfully exist as we understand it at that point. But right now that's, we're in this happy medium where things are moving smoothly. Yes, that's. I think there was a Doctor Who episode where they went to the end of the universe somewhere. And yeah. it's just not sort of how they had it depicted in Doctor Who. Well, it, it would be... It would be just as uh, incomprehensible to us as the beginning of expansion is to us now. If you think the beginning of expansion means essentially that every everything that we can perceive, the matter, or well, more, more likely the energy and space time of the universe, was in a state of maximal density, uh, essentially a single point, and everything has been expanding since that time. To borrow the title of a recent movie, it was literally everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, there, there is no uh, time. It was not would not have been a meaningful concept because there is no state of change or change of state. Rather, um, space was not a meaningful concept because there were no dimensions. Matter definitely didn't exist. Energy was just everything, so it could be not really distinguishable from a higher or lower energy state. It was. Like I said, everything everywhere all at once, um, but in such a state that we wouldn't really have any comprehension of it. And likewise, as if indeed the expansion of the universe does continue to accelerate and does so without abatement, then eventually the acceleration will be so great that it will tear apart, or not exactly tear apart, but the space in, in within an atom will grow so large that the atom itself won't be able to contain itself to maintain its shape and eventually even these subatomic particles won't be able to maintain their coherence and there just won't be anything. There won't even be photons to observe what's happening. So existence as we know it may eventually come to an end. That is one possible scenario. We'll get into that a little bit later. All right. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Astronomy, right. cosmology, all of that stuff is one of my favorite topics. When I was a, uh, a child, I would often check books about astronomy out and on the, from the library, and sometimes on like a Friday or a Saturday night, my mom would and I would lay down on the on the driveway and try to find, <laughs> you know, just various stars or planets and constellations. And I, I still enjoy doing that as an adult, but it's a, too big of a pain in the butt to get my telescope out because it's kind of large, so I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know the feeling. I actually have a telescope that I don't use as often as I'd like as well. Um, and I did spend many nights as a child uh, observing the sky, sometimes spotting satellites, spotting constellations. Um, now, unfortunately, uh, I briefly touched on this in the last episode. The science education I received as a child was uh, focused around uh, what many know as young Earth creationism. And the, as the name implies, it considers the Earth and the universe in general to be much younger than scientific investigation has found them to be. Um, so the idea that the universe could have been expanding for 13.8 billion years was just right out the window. Uh, we just asserted, based on our understanding of the Bible, that it was uh, less than 10,000 years old, and that was the end of it. It didn't matter how far away those galaxies were, even if they were millions of light years away, then well, it just didn't matter because surely they were less than 10,000 years old. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It didn't even then to me. I just assumed that I didn't understand it well enough for it to make sense. But now I know. No, it just doesn't. Really doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but we don't need to go into all that today. Uh, that's that's its own discussion. Uh, that's probably better for a different kind of podcast. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> today we just really want to look at you know what what does this mean and why why are scientists so confident of it? And really to do that we need to go way back um, and understand how people used to see the cosmos. The cosmos being you know, all of existence as they knew it. You know, if we go back to the earliest. Uh, the most ancient legends and the earliest depictions of the skies in art, we see people thinking of the stars and planets as often as celestial beings, um, gods, demigods, heroes. Uh, that's why many of the constellations are named for mythological figures. Uh, why, for example, the Pleiades is sometimes known as the constellation of the Seven Sisters, even though only six are visible to the naked eye. And that's because something like 100,000 years ago, uh, the 
relative position of the stars was such that you actually could see seven. And so the name the Seven Sisters stuck around, even as our solar system's travels through the galaxy change its position relative to the stars in that constellation to where you can now only see six. Um, and, so, uh, since you're mentioning that, um, yes. let me let me break in real quick. The museum I work at, we have, I cannot remember which one of the uh, tribes it is that had this, but we have the copy of a star map from one of the tribes from the 1800s. Oh, wow. That that was painted. Now, the one that's on display in the gallery is a replica. <laughs> you know, you don't want the yes. real one hanging up from the ceiling of your your museum, but that's one of my favorite uh, favorite exhibits. Most people don't realize it's there because you have to look up. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, but yeah, we can tell that people, you know, they thought of the sky as some sort of a dome or a sheet or um, a roof. Um, and again, the general perception of the sky in ancient times was not that far away. Uh, they, they knew it was high, a bit higher than the mountains um, or a bit higher than the trees. But the idea that it extends effectively indefinitely outward is actually a very new one in science. Um, it was, if you look at even in the 1500s, uh, an illustrated Bible from Martin Luther, for example, shows uh, God watching over the earth from just outside the firmament, which is a term you might hear, of the heavens, where the, there is the earth as a globe, which is a bit better than even earlier societies had it. But surrounding this globe is a another globe, a glass or metal sphere, in which are inscribed the stars and across which the planets wander. And in fact, means wanderer. Uh, the ancient uh, Greeks, for where we get the name from, the planetists were the wanderers. They thought they were stars of some kind that just didn't follow the normal rules, which is why they're often associated with the gods, because how else could they move in unconventional ways across the firmament? But we're getting kind of all over the place here. Basically, people used to think that the earth was flat, the sky was a dome or a sheet over it, and the things that we could see in the stars, the sun, the moon, the planet, or in the sky, the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars, uh, the galaxy, all these things were etched into this firmament, this solid glass or metal dome. Uh, you can see it in ancient literature, uh, including even the Bible, where uh, it refers to the sky hard as a mirror of cast bronze. Um, in Job 37, 18, I believe, if you're curious. Um, and that, that was pretty good. I, Thank you. I, there's literally two Bible verses stuck in my head that I could, that I could quote you. And that's that's it. I couldn't be throwing throwing out any job. <laughs> oh well, th thanks to thanks to my upbringing, I I have a fairly comprehensive knowledge of the Bible and can quote large portions of it from memory. <laughs> the part of my brain that that used to occupy is now filled with like Doctor Who facts or Star Wars. Oh, I know a lot about those too. <laughs> I, I have a very good head for trivia. What can I say? Um, it, but it, I mean, it, just as a cultural artifact, whether or not you take it as having religious significance, uh, it, it is interesting to see the evolution of thought of the cosmos over time. Uh, by the time you get to the writings of Paul, the apostle, for example, he refers to the third heaven, uh, the idea that the Greeks had that there was a multi-tiered cosmos where it wasn't just the earth. There was the earth, the heavens, and the outer heavens, the where the uh, deities themselves dwelt. Um, and so that was the imagery that you see in the writings of Paul the Apostle. However, by the time, about 500 years before that, um, there was a Greek man named Eratosthenes. He was one of the first to actually try to calculate the size of the Earth. Uh, the philosophers of his time, and probably many other places as well, we just don't have records of it, had figured out that the Earth is round. They, you know, the, you can make many observations, see ships disappearing over the horizon, bottom up. You can see the shadow of the moon or of the earth across the moon during a lunar eclipse um, you can notice that you can see further when you climb up on a high mountain than you can when you're at its base all these things did lead them correctly to the conclusion that the earth is round and since he knew that during the summer solstice there was a city in egypt where a well could cast no shadow uh, he realized this must be on the equator uh, and so he set up an experiment by which he measured 
the length of the shadow uh, on the same day at the same time of two sticks of the same length, one at the city in Egypt and one where he was in Greece and had to relay the message <laughs> between the two places, which back before instantaneous worldwide communication was a bit more of a chore. But yeah, that that was probably pretty complex getting that message to him. Yes, uh, given the given the what he had to work with, that was a very fantastic experiment, and um, he managed to calculate uh, to within about one percent of its actual diameter the or its actual circumference, the circumference of the Earth. So, a very impressive feat for the time that he had available, um, or the the methods he had available at the time. And this was really the first scientific experiment to try to determine something about the nature of the cosmos. Was it flat as was was readily perceived or was in fact was the earth in fact round and did it have a particular size? Uh, he also calculated the distance to the sun and it's a little unclear from the translation, but either he got it off by about a factor of a uh, thousand or he was actually within uh, something like 10% of its actual distance. Suffice it to say, uh, the, the math is a little bit hard to translate sometimes. So uh, there, there are two schools of thought on whether he got it ac- he was accurate or whether he was way off base in his estimate of the size of the sun. Anyway, very impressive uh, feat for the time. Incredibly, and, I yeah. I couldn't factor that out now using unless well, I was it, using Google. It, it was, <laughs> well, yeah, it was. It's apparently it can be done using relatively simple trigonometry, uh, which was available at the time. People had worked that kind of math out, but yeah, that was. You know, that was about 2,500 years ago. And a bit later came uh, Ptolemy, the, uh, not the, not, not the world. Not the emperor yeah. families. <laughs> not, not that not, one. Yeah. <laughs> not, not the, not the, not the imperial family, but uh, the astronomer who worked out with the assumption of the earth at the center of the universe, the motions of the planets. And it was fairly accurate uh, by adding what he called epicycles. Um, where there was these little circular motions of the planets as they moved across the firmament, uh, he was able to fairly accurately predict where the planets and stars would appear in the sky at a given time. We we now think of it as laughably wrong with the Earth at the center, but it's important to understand that this was still scientific. It was taking some observations, making some assumptions about them, and making a model that has predictive power, and it was better than any previous model. So, you know, it was, yeah, it was wrong, but all models are wrong. Just some models are more useful and more accurate than others. And this one was still more useful and more accurate than any previous model that had been made. This one could actually be used to do math. And in fact, uh, was the basis for the famous uh, Antikythera mechanism uh, that's been found in wreckage of a Greek boat from, I don't remember the exact time. I think it's around 2,200 years ago, but don't quote me on that. I don't have it off the top of my head. Um, But yes, uh, reconstructions of it have found that it's a fairly accurate uh, calculator for the positions of the planets in the sky based on this Ptolemaic astronomy. Now, here's where it gets a little sad. People just kind of stuck with it for a really long time. Um, <laughs> it was a, it was accurate enough, and there was not enough opportunity for curiosity and scholarship that it was just treated as essentially the final word on the subject for a really long time. And it was not until uh, the 1400s when Nicolaus Copernicus came up with his new idea of a heliocentric model, meaning the sun was at the center of the, well, at the the time they thought universe, that anyone seriously started challenging the idea. And to a modern scientist, that's unheard of. Science is all about challenging existing ideas, finding better ways to describe what we can observe in the universe. But to be fair, there wasn't really much need for knowing more. There wasn't intercontinental travel over the ocean there wasn't there weren't any satellite communications right we didn't really need to know that much more about the functioning of the cosmos so it just kind of sat as a presumption an academic presumption for a really long time but in in the 1400s and forgive me i didn't bring up the date exactly uh nicolas Copernicus published uh de revolucione or the or how it's commonly known it's in latin it's on the revolution of the planets and he was wrong because he started with the assumption. He also started with a bad assumption, just like Ptolemy had. Ptolemy had started with the assumption that the Earth is the center of the universe. Copernicus started with the assumption that all the orbits were perfect circles. And so while his model could explain some things, it actually did not predict things as well as Ptolemy's model because Ptolemy's model had been refined over the course of thousands of years. 
and was actually better at predicting the positions of the planets than Copernicus's was. While it couldn't account for the general positions of the planets as well as Copernicus's model could, it could still, I know this sounds weird, but it could account, it could more accurately predict their specific locations. And what I mean by that is Copernicus's model correctly figured out the order of the planets from the sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Uh, they didn't really know about Uranus and Neptune at the time. Uh, that's um, in fact, the five planets plus the sun and the moon are where we get the days of the week from. That's why we have seven days in the week. That's why it's often considered a divine number, because there were seven heavenly bodies that moved that were known to the ancient people. We can even see it in the days of the week today, especially if you look in other languages. But that's a, another topic for another time. He correctly figured out that the reason why Venus, for example, never appeared significantly more above the horizon than something like 20 degrees was because it was closer to the sun than the Earth. But he couldn't figure out why he couldn't accurately predict its location. It wasn't until a, a, another astronomer named Johannes Kepler began uh, making observations over the course of something like 16 years of the positions of the planets. And this is by eye. I don't think he even had a telescope. That's tenacity right there. That's really tenacity. Um, yeah. And in fact, uh, I'm sorry, no, he did have a telescope, but it wasn't very good by today's standards. Uh, and in fact, uh, he had previously uh, lost part of his nose in a duel and had a, a prosthetic on his face, but he would take it off when using his telescope because it meant he could better align his eye to it. <laughs> that's 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 cool to know and that that would <laughs> give you an advantage on telescope alignment. Yes. Is glorious. <laughs> <laughs> so he took 16 years of observations and... Um, after banging his head against the wall many times, so to speak, finally realized that if he just dropped the assumption of a perfectly circular orbit, he could make sense of it with very slightly elliptical orbits. Um, and suddenly we had a model of the solar system that was far and away the most accurate ever produced. And by this time, you know, people had generally come to recognize the Earth as round. It wasn't like Columbus suddenly proved that to everyone. In fact, Columbus used very bad estimates of the size of the Earth and the, ex the eastern extent of Asia to think that he had actually arrived at India when he found the Americas. Uh, he was just lucky that there hadn't been a continent in the way or he would have run out of food. Yes, yes, he would have. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually, um, I just listened to a podcast about Columbus. Until the day he died, he thought the island of Cuba was Japan. Yes, uh, not, not all that great at uh, picking up on social cues there, was he? Nope. Uh, also, the the uh, slavery and beating not not that pleasant of a character, really, uh, when you look at him through a more objective lens of history. But um, it's a different podcast, different obviously, podcast for a different time. <laughs> <laughs> so, with this more accurate model of the solar system, people were able to start making better observations. And this is also very much not coincidentally around the same time people were starting to make longer voyages around the ocean, like Columbus, uh, like many of the colonizers. Unfortunately, and I'm sure, and I know you've talked about some of the effects of that in your podcast. Um, yes, yes we have. <laughs> it, it really has, uh, little has done more to shape the geopolitics of the world than colonization. That is and true. So uh, there were many, science often proceeds in many avenues at once to produce new changes in society. Uh, and this was one of them, right? You had astronomy, you had timekeeping, you had shipbuilding all coming together to make it possible to navigate the ocean accurately, which is something that they had never been able to do before. Uh, it was basically dumb luck if you managed to, you know, sail west and hit a continent, for example. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, there, um, was, there was no GPS for, for Columbus at all. Um, which, by the way, go back to season one episode there's one that is all about gps because my son is until recently was one of the few people on the planet that could operate one so oh, he cool. fills us in on all of their can and can't do and there is no such thing as a gps tracker that can be injected into your body and he explains why sorry selfless plug oh excellent i'll have to check that episode out thank you um so this you know this wave of discovery and cultural expansion again, to put it uh, as generously as possible, brought great wealth to Europe uh, as it was recovering from the, or in the middle of, but also recovering from the uh, the many waves of Black Plague. And uh, at this, around this time, uh, in the early 1600s, uh, a 
little guy you might have heard of named Isaac Newton, started working out the mathematics behind this. He noticed that things tend to fall in predictable ways, based partly on the work of Galileo, who noticed that, for example, the mass of an object did not change the speed at which it fell. Um, and Newton started working out why this is. And in, while he was doing so, realized he had to invent a whole new branch of mathematics, which we now know as, calcula as calculus. Uh, he called it the fluxions, but calculus sounds better and stuck around. Uh, and of course, let's not forget Leibniz, who also worked it out around the same time. It's often the case that when they're, when the academic world is ripe for a new idea, many people will discover it at once. As mentioned in the previous episode, for example, Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace discovered natural selection around the same time. And we can be confident that had neither Newton nor Leibniz existed, someone else would have worked out the mathematics of calculus as well. The opportunity was right for it. And Newton, however, also realized that as he was doing this math, that he could work out that the same reason why the apple fell from the tree or the cannonball traced an arc as it fired from a cannon was the same reason why the moon went around the earth, the earth went around the sun, and all of them did so in elliptical orbits. This was just a truly monumental insight. It's difficult to overstate just how much of a change this was in thought. There was no more of the philosophy of Aristotle saying that just things want to be in a certain place and that's why they move or stop. There was no more treating the heavens as some sort of untouchable ethereal place. No, they were just as physical as the earth and made of the same stuff. The idea that there was a quintessence of the heavenly bodies went, went, kind of went out the window as Newton figured these things out and publicized them and the ideas spread far and wide. So at this point, we've gone from flat earth, dome sky, to indefinite space, to orbits being controlled by physical laws. And again, this we've kind of grown up with this. It seems very obvious to us, but it was really monument a monumental shift in thinking. It took the earth definitely from the center of the, of the solar system, possibly from the center of the universe, because as observations got better, for example, Newton's assistant or colleague, uh, Edmund Haley, famously used historical observations to work out that there was a comet with a period, an orbital period of about 76 years, and correctly predicted its next appearance. And it's been a popular uh, astro astronomical uh, phenomenon to observe every 76 years since then, because instead of being portents of ill omen, comets are now recognized as physical objects that travel through space using predictable laws. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that if you were alive at the time, and as many people had, staked part of their uh, ideological or religious belief on the magical nature of the heavens, it was quite a blow to that. It caused a lot of what we now call cognitive dissonance, where people had a hard time understanding how these things could be true. And again, whether or not... F fortunately, have... in today's society, there is no cognitive dissonance I know, at it's, it's all. Wonderful. It, it, it's gone away. Facts, right? Yeah, it, it, it's just gone away. <laughs> um, and... Well, it's also interesting that how the cognitive dissonance, though, of yesterday is the common knowledge of today. And I, I'm quite confident that, you know, within 100 years, there will be a lot less cognitive dissonance around the things that cause that in people now. They'll have their own new set of things that are upending their ways of thought or that they hold in tension. But at least the things that are now controversial will probably be much less so in the future and to be replaced by their own controversies as those things come up. Um, so. You know, this this massive shift in thought paved the way for what we call the scientific revolution, where people where people started to realize, hey, you know, maybe the universe isn't quite as mysterious or supernatural or magical as we once thought. We can actually understand it on its own terms. And uh, this followed the work not just of Newton, but also of the of Francis Bacon and uh, many Muslim scholars whose names I unfortunately forgot. Uh, as, I mean, and scholars from around the world, uh, even uh, the, the Mayans were doing astronomy in dome-shaped uh, observatories. Um, they didn't have telescopes, but they still understood the importance of having a, a of narrowing the light that you see to make better observations. Um, well, I mean, the movement of the, you know, the planets and the constellations you go is so important for agriculture. Yes, yes. Um, and so, uh, they, you know, many different cultures are doing their own scholarship on the matter, but it was just, you know, Newton was the first to work out the more, the general universality of what we now know as the theory of gravitation. Now, for what it's worth, his math wasn't quite good enough. Uh, he didn't, he couldn't figure out how the planets maintain their orbits and assumed that there was, in fact, still some uh, supernatural intervention to maintain them there. And it wasn't until a bit later, about 200 years later, that um, an astronomer by the name of Laplace, uh, under the patronage of Napoleon Bonaparte, 
produce some more complicated use of calculus to work out the orbits of the planets in much more detail, recognizing that they all pull on each other to a certain extent, and that while it is predictable in the short term, in the long term, it is chaotic. It, it cannot be predicted sufficiently with known conditions. Uh, that's another another separate thing that has uh, affected science, that we recognize that there are some things that we just can't know, and it might be frustrating, but it's better to know what you can't know than to keep banging your head against the wall, trying to figure out things that are just going to be forever beyond our ability to understand them uh, without at least total omniscience, which somehow I don't think we will ever quite achieve that. Um, <laughs> thank, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yeah, really. <laughs> right? that, would, that would be so boring. But Yes, it would. Um, the, you know, by, by the time we get to Laplace, he famously may or may not have said that he had no need of the hypothesis of divine intervention when questioned on it by Napoleon. Now, did he actually say that? Who knows? Um, but it is notable that he was able to do all his work without, as Newton did, appealing to divine intervention in the motions of the planets. So all this time, though, it would, telescopes were still not powerful enough to do more than see, for example, that some stars that appeared single to the naked eye were, in fact, two stars orbiting each other. That was a pretty big discovery. There, were, there was recognition that uh, by the 1800s that the stars were uh, much, much farther than had been previously thought. Uh, they were finally able to take, make accurate enough measurements to, re to use uh, trigonometry and triangulation to work out the distance or approximate distance to stars. And what had previously been a mystery of why the stars appeared to be just fixed in their position over time was that they were just really, really far away. Uh, the idea of a light year being the standard unit of, dis of measure to measure the distance to stars was just unheard of until... It was worked out that stars were, in fact, many light years away. And uh, they do this by measuring the same star at two different times of the year, six months apart. So you take a measurement of the star relative to other stars that are even more distant on, say, January 1st, and then on June 1st, approximately, um, you know, work it out to exactly opposite the opposite side of the sun, measure the same star again and its position relative to the even more distant stars. And based on how much it appears to shift, that's called parallax. Uh, it's similar to how when you're driving uh, on a flat road where the mountain in the distance, the things that are closer will tend to move across the mountain as you drive by while the mountain seems to stay relatively fixed in position. That same change in perspective allows us to measure the distance to stars with pretty good accuracy. And this really opened up the universe even more, right? It wasn't just that the moon and planets were a bit distant from us. They were still far and away the closest things to us, which is why we can observe their motion with the naked eye. Whereas the distant stars over the course of a human life won't appear to change. But this is where it gets back to what I mentioned earlier. Things, because the Earth is in fact in a solar system, in a galaxy, all the stars move relative to each other over the course of a very long time. And that's why the Pleiades constellation, which is often known as the Seven Sisters and features often in the uh, the cultural legend known as the Cosmic Hunt. It's a very, there's some very interesting scholarship on such legends and how they evolve over time in different cultures. Uh, and that is one of the oldest ones. It's the origin of the Pleiades. And it almost always involves a hunt in some way and people escaping into the heavens, starting with seven. And then some of them also include in the legend why there appear to only be six now, because perhaps one of them is crying, one of them is hiding, something like that. Uh, but it tells us that this legend is at least 100,000 years old, because that's how long you would have to go back to be able to discern with the naked eye that there are, in fact, seven stars in the Pleiades cluster, as opposed to just six. That's um, that's so cool. It really is. <laughs> um, it, just to piggyback on what you're saying, the, the immense distance between stars is one of the reasons why I just don't think that aliens have ever actually been to Earth. I'm not saying that there aren't aliens or life on other planets. I think there is. But the distance is so great, unless you have developed faster than light travel, and even then, it would still take a considerable length of time to get places. It's just the well, distance in overcoming that. You have to either have a generational ship. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So that, there, there, that's why I don't think they're here. There, there are certainly monumental challenges that would have to be overcome to make interstellar travel of biological beings possible. Yet, you're right, it probably isn't going to happen. It always is going to be cheaper and easier to send robots. Um, and those robots can outlast your civilization if you do make them right. But, yeah. I and then they come back as V'ger. That might happen, yes. Um, <laughs> and then we have to wonder what does God need with the starship, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
and, and so yeah uh the with, with more and more observations the our our scale the scale and scope of the universe continued to expand to what we got to the late 1800s early 1900s or sorry the late 1800s let me stop for a second was one of the most famous null result experiments of all time uh null result is when you do an experiment try to find some phenomenon and you get nothing right uh and this was the michelson morley experiment to try to determine the properties of the aether uh it was proposed that light had to travel through something just as sound waves travel through the medium of air or something solid or liquid they assumed that light waves, because light could in fact be measured as a wave, would have to travel through some sort of medium and disturb it in some way. But they could never figure out what this medium was like. They knew it didn't seem to be compressible. It seemed to be part of a vacuum. They they just couldn't understand it. So they devised this really great experiment that would combine two light beams in such a way that if they were disturbed, then they would their waves would cancel each other out and make a disturbance pattern. Um, and that if indeed there was this luminiferous ether, as was thought, then over the course of a year, uh, you should see a change in the in the interference pattern of the light waves. Well, you know, in the great uh, Ken Burns documentary, Thor, The Dark World, they do explain what the ether is. I only seen that movie once, did not much care for it. So, so I don't remember that particular one. <laughs> that, that's which uh, one of the stones that uh, was introduced in that one was the ether. Is what oh, they called okay. it. All right. But yeah, Disappointed was... you did not get that MCU uh, reference. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I saw it once, and it was, it's probably my least favorite MCU movie. So uh, I, I wish I I remembered it better, but I don't. The, uh, <laughs> it's all right. Yeah. So so yeah, the this uh, experiment, the the famous Michael Morley experiment, found that regardless of the direction the Earth was moving around the sun, it's you know as I mentioned, this is another one that does best when you take measurements six months apart because if it's going toward. Uh, the direction of the ether one way, then it's going opposite the direction the other way. And so you should see a change in the light beams. And they saw no change. And this was baffling at first. And then they realized, wait, there just isn't either. Light just propagates through a vacuum. It just does. And, you know, later experiments in quantum mechanics help elucidate why this is. But sometimes, it, well, hopefully you're understanding there is a theme here in the study of the cosmology. Better ideas come about by ditching bad assumptions. There is the assumption that the earth was flat. It was wrong. There was the assumption that the Earth was the center of the universe. It was wrong. There was the assumption that the orbits of the planets were circles. It was wrong. There was the assumption that the stars were very close or not much farther than the planets. That was wrong. There was the assumption that light had to go through a medium in order to propagate. That was wrong. This is one of the ways that science improves over time. When you have what you think of as a baseline assumption that you don't necessarily question, sometimes it can lead to dead ends or failure to produce a result and a good scientist is going to go back to the drawing board and sometimes question even the most basic assumptions and that is often how progress in knowledge is made so uh, this was in the late 1800s and not long after that there was a, uh, a fellow who was working as a patent clerk but also taking courses at the same time you may have heard of him albert einstein uh, he started working out what are the implications of this why is it that light appears to go at the same speed no matter what direction and dis and speed you're traveling. This makes no sense to our normal way of thinking, right? If we are moving toward something or away from it, it will appear to change in size or relative speed. Like if there's a car driving down the road toward us and we run toward it, it will come toward us faster. If we try to run away from it, it will, well, we can't outrun the car, but it will not seem to be coming toward us quite as quickly because we're running away from it. But light doesn't work that way. No matter what direction you're going, no matter how fast you're going, light always goes the same speed as you observe it, which just doesn't make any sense in our slow way of thinking at the size of a human. So it, it, it's really mind boggling, even today, just with everything we know to just think it, how it really is, how um, awesome that is. That it does no, that. And so, yes, he, he took these ideas and formulated them into what we now call the general and special theories of relativity. Uh, I don't have the knowledge or ability to explain the math behind it but uh, nor the do general i concept well ho hopefully someone uh, out there can and maybe maybe can go on do that on a future podcast where they actually know the math but the the general concept is that it turns out that indeed no matter how fast you're going you'll measure c the speed of light in a vacuum as approximately three hundred thousand kilometers per second very fast but not infinite and that as you move faster you need more energy to keep accelerating 
And there is no way for anything with mass to accelerate quite to C. C is the natural consequence of the physical properties of the universe. It's not so much that light can go at a particular speed, it's that it must and can only go at a particular speed uh, in a vacuum. And there's nothing blocking it. The photon will move at 300,000 kilometers per second and experience no time. So the life of a photon is instantaneous relative to the photon. And as you travel faster as something with mass, time around you will slow down. Or rather, the your time will slow down relative to everything else. So everything else will appear to be going faster around you if you were to get in your spaceship and manage to push up to 99.999% the speed of light, add a few more nines on there, you would eventually see the entire universe around you go through its entire life and death while you were still traveling through it. Although you probably, as mentioned earlier, expanded nothingness as well. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, everything will look extremely blue in front of you and extremely red behind. Um, yes. Because... Blue shift and red shift is yes. such a cool concept. And you actually kind of explained it briefly earlier without mentioning that that's what you're talking about when you're talking yes. about sound or the mountain and sound and all of that. Right. And so, as we mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, and this is what I was going to get to now, the consequences of this relativistic change in velocity uh, is that the light waves in front of you, while they won't change their speed, they will change their relative frequency. And so they will compress in front of you and look a bit more blue and stretch out behind you and look a bit more red or Conversely, if something is coming toward you, it will appear to be bluer. And if something is going away from you, it will appear to be redder. Um, and I say that. That is just the direction of shift in the electromagnetic spectrum. What we see as colors from red to blue is just one small band of that of the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Um, but that's useful for everyday vision. There are, of course, animals that can see in bands of the electric, electromagnetic spectrum that we cannot. Uh, many animals can see in infrared and ultraviolet, for example. Sadly, we do not have that ability. Or rather, if you actually, if you take out the lens in your eye, you could see some ultraviolet. It would look weird, but you could. But of course, you'd be getting damage to your retina, so it's probably not a very good trade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not 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 the trade off that might sound like it would be. So we, uh, they worked out that the that the, as you see things, you know, further away, or rather, if things are traveling away from you, they will appear more toward the red end of the spectrum, and as they travel towards you, they'll appear more blue. Well, Edwin Hubble, the famous astronomer and rocket designer, made started making observations of many distant galaxies. Um, not long before that, people had started working out that what they had previously thought were spiral nebulae were actually completely separate galaxies from the Milky Way. This, again, smashed an old assumption that the stars that we could see was all that there was of the universe. And it turns out that, indeed, the Milky Way galaxy itself, large as it is, about 100,000 light years across, is still only one galaxy among many many, many, many galaxies. At a rough approximation, there are somewhere in the range of 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and there are approximately 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. So make of that what you will. So space, as the famous British author Douglas Adams put it, is big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you think it's a long way down the road to the chemists, but that's just peanuts to space. And that is still a gross understatement. Uh, space is just mind-bogglingly big. Uh, even the distance to the nearest planet is more than you will likely travel in your entire lifetime, even if you are, travel around the world once a month. Right. The, the largeness of the universe is why, and this is going to show my, my nerdiness, the phrase, I love you to the moon and back, that's really not that, that impressive. That's like a two-week <laughs> thing, right? right? I mean, you can go on vacation in Europe for longer than two weeks than it would take going to the moon. Yes. Impress well, me. Tell me that you love me to the Andromeda Galaxy and back. That is an unending love right there. That, that is, yeah, that is just a bit better. So, yeah, so the Andromeda Galaxy was one of the first to be re recognized as a completely separate galaxy to our own. Uh, this is largely due to the observation of a supernova in the galaxy that had all these spectral emissions of a supernova they were, where they check the light coming from the, from the light source and look at its spectrum. But it was much dimmer than had been observed in supernovae in our galaxy itself. So they finally realized, hey, this isn't just a smudge. This is a totally other galaxy with stars, much like our own. And the Andromeda galaxy is one of those very few galaxies that is blue shifted. Uh, that means it is moving toward our galaxy. And in something like a few billion years, uh, our galaxies will merge into one larger galaxy. 
uh, as their gravity continues to inexorably pull them, pull themselves toward each other, um, they'll eventually be one large galaxy, probably an elliptical style galaxy as opposed to these spiral galaxies that we have right now. So Hubble made this observation. You notice that the Andromeda galaxy is in fact shifted in the blue, meaning it's coming toward us. But most galaxies, and not just most galaxies, but the further the galaxy is, the more he sees this, they are red shifted. They are moving away from our galaxy. Now, why could this be? Why, why, why would it be that almost in every direction you look, the galaxies and the more distant the galaxy, the more red shifted it is? Why, why would this be the case? Well, this was, a, this was a mystery, right? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense at first. Uh, a few scientists and mathematicians started working out, well, what are the consequences of this? What if we apply this to time? Uh, Alexander Friedman in the 1920s, and then uh, later Georges Lemaitre, a, uh, a Catholic priest in the 1930s, worked out that if you take this to its logical conclusion, that if they are moving away from us, then at some point they were closer, and worked out that there was some time in the past when everything was everywhere all at once. Um, the All the matter, energy, space-time was compressed into a single point. Georges Lemaitre thought of it as a primeval atom. He thought that it was a you know extraordinary nucleus that eventually split off. That was incorrect. Nuclei didn't actually exist until later. Uh, another thing that we can work out in a bit. But this was, again, this actually took a while to catch on because uh, at the same time, people had been making models of the universe, again, with the assumption that it was effectively eternal with, with no particular beginning or end. And once again, you see that you have to challenge an existing assumption in order to make progress in knowledge. Yes. And if if I could real quick, if you would, if you're listening and you wanted to do a cool experiment on an easy experiment on how the sort of expansion of uh, the universe works, get a balloon, get a sharpie, put two dots almost touching next to each other, and then blow it up as close, you know, pretty huge, and notice the distance between those dots is is going to change, and that's how. Obviously, a, a very simplified, <laughs> but that's an easy experiment that you could do with your kids to teach this principle of universe expansion, mm-hmm. if you're so inclined. Yeah. Another way I, uh, I like to uh, describe it is, uh, imagine you have an elastic string, and you have an ant that crawls, that, that starts on one of your hands, and you're holding the elastic string between your fingers. You have an ant that starts on one of your fingers and starts crawling across the string to the other side. And as this ant does so, you stretch the elastic band. So the ant will be moving across the band, and the distance that it has to move will increase, but the distance behind it that it has already moved will also increase. This changing distance, even though it's still the ant is moving at a constant speed, which is, we'll say, the speed of light here, means that the universe... Uh, that This is why everything is redshifted, in a sense, because the universe itself, space and time are getting bigger everywhere, including the space where the photon has already moved through. And so as it does that, it loses energy to that increased amount of space. So even though its speed remains constant, the while distance over time, the velocity of the photon remains constant, the distance behind it does not, nor does the time. Uh, the Because the universe, the space-time of the universe, which again, just to clarify terms, that was one of the things that Einstein came up with. He realized that space and time are in fact part of a unified fabric of the universe. They are not separate things, really. We can measure them distinctly, but there's really no way to measure space without doing it at a particular time, no way to measure time without knowing where in space you're measuring it. Uh, So, for example, if I wanted to uh, meet Jack in person, we'd have to coordinate a time to meet and a place. We can't do just one or the other, or it just won't work. Exactly. So, you know, in the 1930s, these observations really started to shake up the idea of the steady state or eternal universe. There were many issues to be resolved in how this came about, but I don't really have time to get into them now. (laughs) The upshot uh, is that uh, by the time of the 1960s, there were two major competing models of the universe. There was the steady state in which the idea was that the universe is just constantly expanding and every once in a while pops into existence a hydrogen atom within like something like one hydrogen atom per century per cubic light year, something like that. Not, and that's one of those things where you couldn't really test it. it. How could you tell if that's actually happening? There's just no way to measure that except by sheer luck. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, but at the same time, because the universe is so vast, it's really hard to make sense of the change happening in it. So that 
models seem to possibly work. But the Big Bang, or what came to be known as the Big Bang model, thanks to a, uh, a sort of derisive description of it by Fred Hoyle, an astronomer who, despite his many accomplishments, held to the steady state theory that I just mentioned, and in fact was one of its architects, gave it this derisive nickname in a radio interview in, I think, 1951. But because it was catchy, the name kind of stuck, even though it does not involve an explosion. It was not at the time big. It was everywhere, but it was effectively indefinitely small. Um, but <laughs> nevertheless, the name stuck. Perhaps a better name would be the Extreme Expansion or something like that. But we call it Big Bang, and that's what it is. And he, countless debates have been had about people or with people based on the ex the assumption that there was an explosion at the beginning ever since. Yes, uh, it's it's a very difficult misconception to overcome. Uh, and that's, that's why I tried to define it right up front as the expansion of the universe from an incalculably hot, dense state. It's not an explosion. Explosions happen within space with chemical reactions or nuclear reactions where matter and energy is scattered within space, whereas this is the expansion of space or space-time. So they were working out that this could be the possible, could be the case, but there wasn't really uh, smoking gun evidence. Both models explained what we could see fairly well. They explained that the more distant a galaxy was, the more uh, redshifted it would be. They explained how there was matter at all, why it's distributed the way it is. But there was something that the steady state model could not explain. And it was the fact that the more distant the galaxy is, the fewer heavy elements it has. This might not seem related, but it is. Stars, as you may or may not know, produce their energy by the sheer force of gravity pushing atoms together in the core of the star. Uh, as these atomic nuclei mash together, most of them hydrogen, um, they give off a bit of energy and merge into a larger nucleus. So two hydrogen atoms will merge together to make a helium nucleus. Uh, the hydrogen being a an atom with one proton and one electron, and helium being an atom with two protons. But it takes a lot of energy to bring two protons together, and so a little bit of mass and energy is lost as the new atom forms. This is nuclear fusion. Uh, it's a very efficient form of energy generation, and that's why there's a lot of very expensive research going on right now to try to replicate that on Earth in a manageable way. Uh, if we can figure it out, then that will solve many of the world's energy problems almost overnight. So it's a very promising line of research, but also a very difficult one to get right, because as you might have noticed, we can't exactly bring a star down to the earth to just start harvesting it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, quantum physicists and cosmologists started working out how these atoms would be mashed together, what sort of energies it would take to make it happen, and what what processes would have to happen in order for it to occur. And this was very difficult to do. At first, it was thought that Big Bang cosmology was untenable because it couldn't produce carbon, yet carbon is fairly abundant. That was eventually worked out, how stars can produce carbon. And the observation was that in addition to being more redshifted, the more distant galaxies were less rich in the heavy elements. And heavy elements are produced uh, as stars fuse elements together. And then eventually they are unable to sustain fusion due to the amount of energy being greater than this, or the the velocity needed to bring atoms together would be greater than the speed of light, um, which, as mentioned before, cannot happen. So instead, they go supernova and explode in mind-bogglingly big explosions. Uh, yeah, just just doing an episode on the life cycle of stars just in itself is oh, it, it's it's fascinating. It's, I, I it, do a lot yeah, more it's incredible. That, though. It, yeah, <laughs> it, it is amazing. And as soon as a star has fused up to iron. It's got, what is it, something like less than a minute left to live? <laughs> yeah, it, it all starts to collapse at once because the the energy needed to fuse iron is greater than can be provided by any force in the universe. And so instead, it undergoes relativistic transformation. It, it's very strange, um, not, not something our puny brains can really comprehend. Uh, as I've seen it put one time in the XKCD webcomic uh, in its What If section. Um, if you haven't read that, I would highly recommend it. The question of which would be brighter to the naked eye, a supernova at the distance of the sun or an atomic bomb going off at your eyeball? The answer is the supernova by nine orders of magnitude. Yeah, yeah, it's, the, yeah, it, it's just incredible, the, the sheer power of supernova. But what's also cool, though, is there are several types, and it's the type 1A yes. is, that they use because it's basically a candle 
on how to measure distance. Which That's is, right. The, which the, is cool. the Type 1A supernovas, they, they go off at a very predictable brightness uh, because they, they involve the acquisition of additional hydrogen by a an otherwise dead star. It brings it all together and then fuses it all at once. And this makes a very predictable brightness. In fact, this that's part of how they determine the distance to these distant galaxies that I was mentioning. They met, they take lots of pictures, find whenever they have one that has a type 1A supernova with a distinct spectral line, and then notice how bright it actually is and how redshifted it is. And this tells us how far the galaxy is from us and, well, how redshifted it is. And as they make these observations, they find the galaxies are, in fact, more redshifted the further away they are. But as I mentioned, they have these lighter elements. And that can only happen if they were there were fewer light or fewer heavy elements in the past. And one of the predictions of Big Bang cosmology is that the initial set of elements that uh, precipitated out of, not precipitated, but that uh, formed as the energy was expanding in the early universe, approximately 380,000 years after the initial uh, expansion would be about 75% hydrogen, about 25% helium, and uh, something like less than 0.1% lithium uh, with maybe one or two beryllium atoms here and there. Um, because uh, the at the very high energies that would have been in the initial Big Bang, larger atoms just couldn't form. They would get blown apart by the energy involved. And in fact, that's still mostly what we see today. The universe is still, uh, the matter in the universe is still mostly about 75% hydrogen and 25% uh, helium. Uh, but now there are a lot of heavier elements like the ones that we are mostly familiar with in our day-to-day, uh, day-to-day life. There are those in the older galaxies and older, and older galaxies with newer stars. Uh, because they've been blown out into the universe and formed into new stars and planetary systems. So this was still not enough to shift scientists really strong one way or the other. There were still a lot of observations that they weren't sure if the Big Bang could really handle until 1964. Uh, two scientists named uh, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson uh, were actually doing some calibration on a radio antenna, and they found that despite their best efforts, there was a frequency that they just kept picking up no matter which direction they were looking in the sky and they couldn't do anything to make it go away no matter how much they cleaned and calibrated their instruments and after a bit of uh, studying they realized this is a confirmed prediction of big bang cosmology big bang cosmology indicates that there should have been a time when the universe went from being opaque with so much energy that you just couldn't see through it to atoms forming as i just mentioned where it become transparent to light and as this happened, there would have been basically a giant flash of light in what's in what was then the visible spectrum, which in the intervening time would have gone to a microwave uh, microwave frequency. This initial bright flash of light, because of the expansion of space time as predicted by Big Bang cosmology, would have cooled to about 2.5 Kelvin, which is very cold, and be stretched out into the microwave range of the electromagnetic spectrum. And this is exactly what they observe. A near uniform 2.5 Kelvin, or approximately 2.5 Kelvin temperature background radiation, no matter where you look in the entire universe. And this was essentially the nail in the coffin of steady state cosmology and the confirmation of Big Bang cosmology. There was still much to be worked out after that, like just exactly how long it's been, uh, because it was not really clear at the time just how long it's been since the universe began expanding. But this single observation uh, is one of the best fits of observation to prediction in all of scientific history. The the, the curve of, of the emitted energy in the what's now known as the cosmic microwave background matches so perfectly the prediction of this energy that you can line up the two graphs and it looks like they're just observation. Uh, it, it's, it's a really fantastic example of how science works. You take your assumptions apply them to the real world and see if you get the predicted results. And in this case, the assumption of the steady state model predicted no such thing, predicted that the distribution of elements should be pretty much uniform as far as we could see, and Big Bang cosmology predicted differently, and that's what was actually observed. That That's one of the, the awesome things about the James Webb uh, Space Telescope. It's only been active since June. first week in July, last week in June, something like that, and it has already confirmed so many well you know yes. several theories just because and it's seen the farthest uh, you know galaxies mm-hmm. away from us and it which of course then confirms hey we thought it was this and they're just tightening and, that and, and that estimation 
And, you know, sometimes it's also upending some predictions as well, which is great. It means that we have, we have to go back to our assumptions, figure out which ones are worth keeping and which ones are worth revising. Uh, it really shows how science is very distinct from politics or ideology or religion in that it's all about ditching what doesn't work, coming up with things that work better, as opposed to sticking to your guns or your beliefs, because that just isn't a way to get more knowledge. It's a way to stick with what you have. And if what you have works for you, I mean, I guess that's nice but you're not going to get any more. Yeah, if it's raising more questions than it's answering, that's that's really kind of a good thing because it's it is. solving stuff. But, oh, hey, now we can expand our knowledge this way. So, yeah, while it's confirming stuff and changing other things, that that's what you want. That's what you yep. want James Webb to do. The, one final note on the history of Big Bang cosmology. Um, in the 1980s and even up more recently, they've been launching satellites uh, to measure this cosmic microwave background in a more accurate way. To, because if it were truly uniform, if it really were exactly the same temperature all around, then we shouldn't see any galaxies. There should be an absolute uniform distribution of matter all around. There should be no difference uh, from one place to another. But there obviously are galaxies and stars and planets within them. So the prediction was that there should have to have been at least some variations in temperature across this microwave background. As the universe became transparent to light, it should be just slightly different temperatures and have done it happen at slightly different times across the universe. And sure enough, the measurements taken of the sky with ever more accurate precision have confirmed that there are minute temperature differences and that these temperature differences conform to the predictions of a, an evolving universe where temperature fluctuates from place to place over time, producing the phenomena that we think of now as gal stars, galaxies, planets, etc. So Big Bang Cosmology it's very interesting. And to tie back to how we talked about evolution last time, what, what does this mean for me? What, what what does this mean in my day-to-day -day life? Why do I care that the universe has been expanding for 13.8 billion years? Why can't it be 10 billion years? Why can't it be last week? Well, the same principles that allowed us to discover these things also undergird much of modern technology. Uh, you mentioned earlier GPS. That's a big one. Uh, GPS works because the predictions of general and special relativity that allow us to determine that Big Bang cosmology works also undergird that technology. If it were not for the adjustments to the clocks made in the satellites all the time based on their velocity, which slows time down, and their distance from Earth's gravity, which speeds time up, they would be rapidly inaccurate within a day or two, and the whole enterprise would be completely useless. So does this mean that general and special relativity are absolutely true? No. It just means they are the most accurate models we have to date, and they produce accurate results, useful results in the real world. So to whatever extent that continues to work, we can still hold those ideas as true and useful. But it doesn't mean that they won't be, maybe not overturned, but at least modified by future observation. In fact, we know that they aren't 100% complete because general and special relativity and quantum electrodynamics, the theory of the very small, uh, things at the atomic and smaller scales, they don't really mesh very well, um, or really at all. There, there's just kind of a breakdown between the two ideas where their scales overlap. So we know that something about the universe isn't quite as we have yet modeled it, and that's one of the things that physicists are studying still to try to figure out what are we missing, what what assumptions need to be challenged, and the part that's both satisfying and annoying is that. All the observations to date at what these scales that are appropriate continue to confirm general and special relativity and continue to confirm quantum electrodynamics. So what do we do? Well, uh, maybe a maybe one of you listening will be one of those physicists to figure it out. And if you do, I would really love to read about that myself. Someday. So that, I think, brings us to the present day. Which is awesome. <laughs> now, that, I just love how knowledge is just always built on. It's really a pyramid, and I just love how you know mm -hmm. everything just stacks and adds up. And, Yep. But sometimes you have to go and take out one of those foundation stones and build it again. Yep. Yep. That is also true. And I have to mention this. Um, it's a promise that I made my son when he was a GPS satellite operator. If your GPS sends you to the wrong place, it is the software, not the satellite. That is exactly right. If I, if I do not mention that the next time he sees me, there's a chance that he might punch me in the face. So, yep. Uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, we, we have a car with a built-in navigation system, and we also have navigation on our phone. And sometimes they don't agree on which roads go where. <laughs> yep, yep. And that that is that is the software. 
And if anybody thinks I'm BSing, my son actually has given a speech to members of the House, the Senate, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff explaining exactly what GPS can do. Yes, this is a brag, and it is not even a humble brag, but I'm a part of that. So That is awesome. Many congratulations to you. Yes. I was All like, right, dude, so- if you could do that, any job interview is easy after this point. <laughs> so uh, any, any more questions, things that I might have touched on and didn't cover or should have touched on? I'm I'm good. I think it was uh, explained fairly well. But how about we do this? Because I do have uh, social media, Facebook, Instagram. I post on there. And if there is a question that you would perhaps like uh, Lars to answer in the future, put those on my uh, social media platforms. And maybe four or five episodes down the road, we can do a Lars Answers Your Questions episode. I'll do my best. But remember, I'm just one guy. Uh, don't take what I say at the final word on the subject. You know, in the famous words of LeVar Burton, don't take my word for it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, I think, Lars, once again, I appreciate you coming on and uh, doing this. It's been fun. I, I really enjoy sort of just letting you give all that information out because um, this, is, this is learning at its core. <laughs> Thank you. So you anyway. Best. Uh, I appreciate it. I'm going to sign off, everybody. And just remember, try to live your life in a way that would make Bob Ross proud. Thank you for listening to Musings of an ADD Mind. If you enjoyed this podcast, or even if you didn't, please hit the subscribe or follow button. 